Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So we are back, back in our Not-So-Minor Prophets series, and we're looking at Jonah. And Jonah is a unique book on a number of levels. Jonah was a prophet. He was an 8th century prophet. We can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 14. Uh, He was definitely an actual prophet, the genuine article. But, you know, the thing about Jonah is uh, in this book, uh, we don't really hear a whole lot of him prophesying as the Lord gives him word. We get a little teeny bit of it, but not much of it at all. This is really unique in the sense that it's more a story about Jonah and really more than that, a story about God and the character of God as merciful, sovereign and merciful. We know that Jonah is not cast in the best light in this story. Uh, For those of you who are of my generation of raising kids, we can borrow the famous words of the Veggie Tale songwriters who said that Jonah was a prophet, but he never really got it. He did not get the point. Is it just is it just me, or are you just not? Did we miss the? Did we skip one? What's the point? The songwriters help us with that too, right? Compassion and mercy from me to you and you to me, exactly what God wants to see. And yes, that is the point. Now, the wondrous thing, the cool thing about Jonah is that this little book has this simple yet profoundly important message about exemplifying God's compassion one to another, which so easily translates to something like a children's story, but it's also remarkably complex. It's filled with subtlety and irony and wordplay and satire, humor, It comes in many forms, humor, but but ultimately, Jonah is the one who is a laughable character, a person who goes through a series of rather remarkable events and demonstrates the hypocrisy of his people, his own hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of his people, metaphorically, in his day, throughout the Old Testament, and as Jesus refers to Jonah, in Jesus' day and even in the church today. The irony comes in several places as well. Jonah demonstrates the major themes of the book through irony, namely the sovereignty of God, and even more pronounced, the mercy of God, God's mercy for the other We see this when Jonah runs from God, yet describes God as sovereign and in all places. And when Jonah attempts to shirk his charges, running away with the sailors, yet it's not Jonah, but the sailors who repent. 
Jonah reluctantly delivers God's message to the Ninevites, and he does so in rather cursory fashion, as we'll see when we get there, only to have a full-on citywide revival. And Jonah's response, not the one you would think, his response is anger. He's angry that the other, quote-unquote, gets God's mercy. Jonah is unique, as I said. One of the many reasons for that is because the story is not so much about the words of the prophet, as I said, uh, either to Israel or to other nations, but a story about Jonah himself and ultimately about God and God's unconditional mercy. The message of Jonah is one that can be leveled not only to Jonah or against Jonah, but also, as we said, God's people down through the ages, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New, as Jesus does, and for the church throughout the centuries. In other words, here's what I want us to think about as a sort of a, a question for us to keep in the, in the back of our minds as we walk through the book. Do we as God's people, as, as the body of Christ, as the church, exemplify God's remarkable compassion and mercy even and especially to our enemies as he did and does to his enemies, including you and I, who Paul tells us were in fact once enemies of God. That's a really important thing to think about as we think about mercy towards enemies because the scriptures describe us as once being at enmity with God. We were enemies, and while we were, he exercised his mercy and compassion on us. So I want to walk through this short book, and it's really short. It's four chapters, but it's only 48 verses in total. And as I do, I want us to do so kind of highlighting some of the humor and irony and this lesson of compassion and I want to do it thematically, and I, and I want to do it this way. I want to put a couple things in front of you as we, as we prepare to walk through it. Number one is, if you end up walking away from this book saying, okay, don't be like Jonah, then you've missed the message. Because every one of us is like Jonah. In a similar way as every one of us is like Adam and Eve, I've heard it said, maybe you've heard it said before too, well, if I were in the garden, I wouldn't have blown it, and we wouldn't be in the predicament we're in. Yes, you would have. No question about it. And you have a little Jonah in you, too. You have that propensity to elevate the self over the other, which is what Jonah does in a big, big way. But I also want us to see here that what I'm going to do is do something with the book that's a little bit unusual. I want to look at it thematically, which means we're going to skip around a little bit, and I want to highlight three primary sets of two that, that I think the author is drawing out to draw our attention to something. That is, well, here's how we're going to look at it. We're going to look at God's call to Jonah to go to the Ninevites, his commissioning of them in the opening verses. And then in chapter 3, we're going to look at how God calls Jonah again to go to Ninevite. We're going to look at the commissioning and the recommissioning, Jonah's response of disobedience here and uh, sort of half-hearted compliance here and give some consideration of that. Then we're going to look at what happens when Jonah disobeys in the first part and his interaction with the sailors as he tries to run from God. 
And then as Jonah sort of complies in chapter 3, and we see him go to Nineveh and what happens with the Ninevites. Then we're going to look at, thirdly, Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish, as we all know, and compare that with Jonah's prayer after he goes to Nineveh, which is a more honest, gritty prayer, and we really get at the heart of Jonah's issues. And then all those things will help us to see how it is that God deals with Jonah at the end of the book, which ends with a question that's not answered about pity. And do we have pity? Do we have mercy for others? And so that's what we're going to do, and I promise I'll give, you, I'll give you some correlations so you don't get too lost in it. So let's just jump in. And here's what we see. Okay. First, the commissioning of Jonah, and then we'll look at the recommissioning. And what I want us to see here is a couple things. Notice uh, the word play. So let's just read it, and uh, we'll, we'll just read this portion, and then we'll pray. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatea, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time in it and under it. And we pray that you would be with us in that. Guide us by your spirit. May we think and feel and consider your word and apply it to our lives in a way that shapes and conforms us more and more to your image, grows us as your church and your people for your glory. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So again, a couple just things to note here. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, so he's a prophet, and that is him being a prophet. And he is the son of Amatea, which is exactly the language you read in Second Kings uh, 14, which tells us he's an 8th century prophet, so he's a pre-exilic prophet, for those of you who might find that interesting. But here's what I want you to see. God says to him, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So two things to note here. One is God tells Jonah to get up and go and do what I call you to do. Um, and I wanted to draw your attention to that for a moment, but I also want to highlight something here. It also says here, their evil has come up before me, and evil is a word that's used a number of times in this book, and sometimes it's translated as evil, what the nations do, and other times it's translated as the disaster that God relents from doing against his people. But it's the exact same word, and I draw your attention to that because if you were to read it in the original language, you wouldn't have the difference of translation. We read in English, and one's, one's evil and one's disaster, but the word play is intentional in the original language. It would be the exact same word. Here's what I want you to see, though. God calls uh, Jonah to arise, and I think the author wants us some, to have some word play. What did Jonah do? He rose to flee from Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. What did he do? He went down uh, to Joppa to find a ship and go to Tarshish. Oh, I can read it just as clearly there. So he, so he paid the fare, went down into it. So he's going down. 
He's going down. He's called to arise, but he's going down. And I think that's intentional wordplay here. It's not just a literal observation of Jonah, uh, but he's going in the opposite way. It's as if he walked out his door and said, well, I'm supposed to go to Nineveh over there, but Tarshish looks good over here, right? But he's not arising. He's going down, down to Joppa, down into the ship, and that's not, just meta, that's not just literal, but metaphorical, not just for him going down, but it's a metaphor for death. Because Jonah seeks after death quite a bit in this book. Which makes me want to pause here and make an observation. Jonah is one of those stories that we get told a lot, and it's often told in children's form. We see it in a cartoon. And usually Jonah is depicted as a timid, meek kind of guy. I don't think that's the case here when you read the scriptures. He's disobedient and defiant, yes. But he's not afraid of death. In fact, he seeks after it. He would rather die than see his God give his mercy to Jonah's enemies. He's defiant in that way. And that's really what we see. And so he says, I'm going to go down away from God. But also notice that the language of from the presence of the Lord is given twice in these first three verses. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then at the bottom to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And so that's sort of the first comparison here. This is how we, we get in the first three verses when we see God's commissioning of Jonah. Now let's look at the next one. We skip all the way to chapter 3 and see when God actually commissions him again. And we get a lot of echo here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Now I want to just pause here for a moment, draw your attention to something. The language is exactly the same in the first call as the second call. The first part is, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. In both sections, you get exactly that language. In the first one, it's arise, uh, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And in the second, we see, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, the message that I tell you. Now, in one sense, we can see that God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh and call them to repent. But the intentionality of the exact same language for the first part of the charge and a different language for the second, I think, highlights two aspects of this. One is God's perfect justice in the first one, highlighting the evil that he sees in Nineveh. And then here is the warning, the message that I tell you that we'll see is uh, in, in, in a minute, that is the warning. And we see the justice of God in that, and we see the mercy of God in that. We see these two important characteristics that are here. And so he's, he does that. So Jonah, Jonah rose. Now the first time Jonah went down, now Jonah arises. He's told to arise, he arise. He rose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This time... Jonah obeys. And what I want to draw your attention to is, is Jonah obeys, but his heart is divided. And we're going to see that as we walk through the book. He, he, he's moving. He's not defiantly disobedient. 
but he's taking the action God wants him to, but his heart is definitely not there. His heart is not in it at all. We get this little nugget here that's helpful for us to note here. Uh, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breath. It takes you three days to walk uh, from one side of the city to another. It's a big city in, in the ancient world. So we have these two comparisons, and what I want you to see is Jonah's completely defiant in the first one. He's called to arise, but goes down. We see that metaphor of death the second time. He's more obedient, but as we're going to see, he's still resistant. And it's this one, chapter 3, where he deals with the Ninevites. But in chapter 1, in his fleeing from God's presence, which we read twice, is it efforts to do that, he goes down to Joppa and gets connected with these sailors. In this next section, uh, 4 through 16, we're going to do in, in, in a little bit of a chunk here to see what happens. So remember, what is Jonah trying to do? Flee from God's presence, right? Here's what we're told. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, there's some cool wordplay here. Jonah wants to get away from the presence of the Lord, right? So God hurls a great wind. In Hebrew, that's ruach, the same word that's used for his spirit. And then the author says, I'm going to contrast that with a mighty tempest, which is a violent windstorm. And so it's in, in a sense we're getting, the, the, the author is saying, I'm giving you both the presence of God through the ruach, the great wind, and through the mighty violent windstorm. You're getting both here declared. Jonah wants to run from the presence of God. God's presence becomes manifest in Jonah's life in a way that he's not really looking to have happen. It's there before him. He cannot escape it. And the mariners, well, they were afraid. And each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo. And I want you to notice that. Sometimes we see this wordplay here. It's an exceedingly great city. The men were exceedingly afraid. God hurled a wind. And the, 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 the mariners hurled their cargo. There's a lot of this wordplay in the writing. They hurled the cargo uh, uh, over the ship to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Does that sound familiar? It should. Because <laughs> Jesus did that too, right? Now Jesus and, and Jonah are not alike. Jonah's a foil for Jesus because Jesus is perfectly obedient. But Jonah goes down on the ship, falls asleep in the midst of a great storm. Jesus falls asleep in the midst of a great storm. And the disciples cry out to them to save him. But here with Jonah, the captain tells them, he, he calls out to him, he says, cry out to your God. And notice that the sailors who have no knowledge of Jonah's God, no knowledge of his unchanging nature, nonetheless call out to him in the hopes and he might give them a thought that they would not die. The captain came and says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give you a thought so that we may not perish. 
something that Jonah would be happy to do rather than see the mercy of God lavished upon the Ninevites. And so he runs away with the sailors. And the sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now let's just pause here for a minute and let's make a couple of observations that are kind of striking here. Here's these sailors and they, they're in the midst of this storm and they, they're pretty sure this is on Jonah's account and so they say, tell us on whose account this evil, notice that word, there it is again, has come upon us. And then they ask this very striking and strange, what, what do you do for a living? What's your occupation? What, what an odd question to ask, isn't it? In the chaos of the ship, in the storm, they, hey, what do you do for a living? Why do you think that is? I think it's because they know you're supposed to be doing something for God. And by the way, we're told that. They tell him, Jonah tells them, I'm fleeing from the presence of God, which makes them go, you're supposed to be doing something important for God, and you're not, and this is what's happening. So what do you do for a living? And where do you come from? And where, what is your country? And of what people are you? Ask them all these questions. And here's what Jonah says. I am a Hebrew. Which, by the way, answers all of the questions. Where do you come from? What is your country? And, are what, and what people are you? All the questions except the one. He doesn't answer the question of what he does for a living. He skips over that one, conveniently. I am a Hebrew. And you can almost feel or hear the, the arrogance in it. It would follow suit that any good Hebrew should say, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That's kind of an expected thing. But notice that he leads with his ethnicity. I am of the chosen people. I am the important one. And you sailors... Just take me where I need to go. You can almost feel it. There's a certain pride in his ethnicity. But then he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And even the sailors are going, really? Do you really? Do you really fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land? The God who made everything? Do you really fear him? If you did, wouldn't you be doing what he told you to do instead of trying to flee from his presence? If you really trust that he was, in fact, God who is everywhere at once, as we get from this, would you not be attempting to obey him? Would you not see the futility in trying to flee from him? Surely Jonah would have been familiar with David's famous words from Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? The exact same words. I think that's intentional by the author. 
What a striking thought. Of course you know, Jonah. So this is just pretense from Jonah. But notice that the men, they're afraid. That's how they respond. They're very afraid, exceedingly afraid. And we can see that they knew that Jonah was attempting to flee from God's presence because he tells them that he's doing that. And the result was this great and disastrous storm, the same word for evil that we see here. One more section to consider the sailors with. Then they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Jonah welcomes death rather than go to Nineveh. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. And let me just pause here and remind you, uh, if you were out on a boat and there was a really, really bad storm, you're not a coward who says, throw me into the sea. That's not a fearful thing to do. That's a brazen and defiant thing to do. But it's not a fearful thing to do, even in our day. But in the ancient world, with all of the understanding about the sea as being the representation of chaos and of evil, Jonah knows most assuredly, you throw me into the sea, I'm dead. And he says, pick me up and throw me in the sea. He knows. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men row hard to get back to the dry land. They're not quite ready to do that. They know that this guy is from God. He's supposed to be doing something from God, so they're not going to just throw him overboard. Even the sailors demonstrate a sense of sanctity of life and that this guy is important. He's supposed to be doing something for God, so they're not quite ready to do that yet. The men row hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. These pagan sailors call out to the Lord. And I want you to notice something here, all capital letters. That's the covenant name, Yahweh. That's what they pray. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, oh, Lord, have done as it pleased you. These guys are praying in the covenantal name of the Lord. You can only imagine what Jonah's thinking as he hears that. You guys shouldn't be praying that way because that's the sacred way. Oh, wait, I'm not doing the right thing here. Maybe I shouldn't speak at a turn. What do they do? They pick him up, hurl him into the sea, and the sea ceases from its raging. It's almost like the sea's personified in a way. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It would seem that in Jonah's de defiant disobedience that these sailors repent and come to saving faith, it would seem quite clear. It would be hard to make a case for anything other than that. There it is. They feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. That's not what Jonah was after. But it would seem that Jonah got his way too. He was thrown overboard. He got death. But of course, God 
has other plans for Jonah. Let's take a look and see what happens here. Now remember, we haven't gotten to Jonah getting eaten by the fish yet. Now we're going back to Jonah. The second time he's commissioned by God to go to Nineveh, now he obeys. So we're following suit to see that. So we looked at his first commissioning, his disobedience, the result of the men, the sailors. Now we're looking at his second time where he is kind of obedient. And then I'll say, okay, he goes to him. So what, what we're going to fill in here is that Jonah has a time in the fish. He's spit out by the fish. And we're going to get to that soon, looking at it in the terms of the prayer. And then he says, okay, I'm going to go. And Jonah begins to go to the city about a day's journey. So remember, it's three days across. He goes about a third of the way into the city, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and any of us shall be overthrown. Jonah is the prophet. But I want you to notice something here. That phrase, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown, is but five words in the Hebrew. So you can almost feel Jonah's kind of fine I'll go to Nineveh, and I'll give them the message. Like, there's no pleading. You don't get the, the long prophecy. There's no heart for the prophet to see the people of God or even the nations repent. And turn. None of that. This is the shortest sermon ever. And you're all thinking, take a cue, Pastor Tim. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Boom. So you could tell, minimal effort, okay, I'll go in, give the message. And Jonah's worst fear is realized. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, I want to draw your attention to something that's quite interesting that will come up later, a little bit more wordplay here. Notice that the, the sailors use the covenantal name Lord, but also now the Ninevites, who are also a pagan nation, we just get the most generic name for God here, Elohim, God. But they nonetheless believed. So not with any eloquence of speech, no silver tongue on Jonah's part. He comes, he gives the micro-sermon. And the people of Nineveh believe God. And the author wants us to see that this is not just they believe God. This is full-on turnaround here. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He repented, and he issued a proclamation published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, that they turned from their evil way, God relented from the disaster. Again, that's the evil way, and God relented from the evil, same word, or, or their disastrous way, and God relented from their disaster. The word plays there and said he would not do that to them. He did not do it. God relented. Jonah's worst fear. And we're going to see that in a minute when we get to the, the, the second prayer. This is not what Jonah wanted to happen. 
This is the last thing you're going to want to happen. You'd rather die than see God lavish his mercy on his enemies. So now, let's go back to Jonah in the sea. Right? Throws him over this great storm. Everything calms down. And God appoints a great fish. So we see some sovereignty here. We're going to see in a number of different places God's sovereignty over his created order. He appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now let's just pause here for a moment and acknowledge that in the modern world, when everybody preaches this sermon, they, they, they want to take a minute to talk about the validity of this. Was this an actual event or was it a metaphor? And we go back and forth on this. But let me just say this. Two things are in favor of this actually happening. One is Jonah is an historical figure. We know that from 2 Kings 14. And two is uh, Jesus refers to this. He refers to this when he speaks to the, the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 12 and says, you'll get no sign except for the sign of Jonah who was three days in the fish, so too will the Son of Man be three days in the earth and will rise again. And so in some manner, this swallowing of the fish, and we're going to see in the prayer shortly, that, or sorry, you see it a little lower here, that, that Jonah sees this as the belly of Sheol. And when the writers of the Apostles' Creed said that, that, that Christ descended uh, into hell, he descended into Sheol, right? That's the, the end of the earth, Right? for three days, and then rises again in resurrection. It's not a very pretty picture of resurrection because it's a fish vomiting Jonah out, but that's the picture. That's how Jesus uses this. And so we see this imagery, and we keep in mind that Jesus refers to this. But Jonah prays this prayer to the Lord, to his God, from the belly of the fish, saying... I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall, uh, I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life and deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root, roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So that's a good prayer. It's got all the right markers. There's confession. There's repentance. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen, Jonah. And it begs an interesting question here. Because what we're going to see in a minute is Jonah's next prayer. And that's a grittier prayer, an angry prayer. And it makes you wonder, was he genuine here? Or was he just saying what he thought was the right thing to say? Or was he 
in Sheol, in the worst possible situation, going, I wanted this, and this is way worse than I thought, and is pleading with God, but falls away quickly. Maybe some of us can relate to that. We have a genuine, genuine prayer, and we mean it with all our hearts. And the next day, or the next hour, or five minutes later, we're blowing it. Anyone? No one raises their hands. <laughs> There's a little bit of that potentially here. The Lord spoke to the fish sovereignly and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. What does Jonah do? He goes to the end of a, a day's journey, gives the shortest sermon in the history of sermons, and great revival bursts out. And when that great revival bursts out, we read here, this is the second prayer now, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You get it? Jonah wanted to see Nineveh get destroyed. That's his enemies. But he knows, at least intellectually, God's a merciful God. That's why I wouldn't go down there. As if somehow he was going to thwart the will of God. Now, here's the thing about this prayer. It may be ugly, but it's honest. At least now Jonah is honest before the Lord. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So again... Jonah seeking after death. He didn't get it when he was thrown into the sea. He didn't get it when he was swallowed by the fish. He's asking for it again. And the Lord asks this great question. I wonder how gracious and patient we are with people in our lives who are angry at us. God doesn't get angry back. He just simply says, do you do well to be angry? This is a really good question, by the way. It's a profound question. Of course it is. It's God asking the question. But just, just pause and take that in. Now, we have something that we know from Scripture called righteous anger. Everybody's heard of that, right? And none of us have experienced it. Not with any regularity, right? Sure, maybe a little bit. For, for the most part, our anger is at least subtly corrupted with our own sin. Jesus knew righteous anger. But not too many of us beyond that. Our anger is corrupted. And so what God's saying is, Jonah, you, me, do you do well to be angry? Can you remember the last time that you were good at what Paul said, to be angry and not, to be angry and not sin? It's very, very hard to do. Do you do well to be angry, a very, very important question that I want to slowly chew on here. So this is how God begins his discussion with Jonah. 
Now that he's got his attention, now that he's tried to flee, now that he's tried disobeying, now that he's kind of obeyed, and we see the heart of Jonah, who doesn't want his enemies to receive the, the grace of God, and now he's forthcoming with that, and he's angry, and God now says, okay, now we've gotten to the root of the problem here. Do you do well to be angry? Is it good for you to be angry? Do you feel better now that you're angry at your enemies? How's that working for you, Jonah? Is that working out well? No. Definitely not. Now here's what we get in the closing verses of the book. Can you see that? I hope you can. Jonah went out of the city and sat the east side of the city and made a booth for himself there and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah got himself a seat, hoping to see that God would still destroy the city. Now, here's what we read. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. Now, before we go any further, I want to draw your attention to another important wordplay. Do you remember that with Jonah and with the sailors, we had the name of God as the Lord, the covenantal name of God? And with the Ninevites, it was just the generic name Elohim. Now, for the first time in the book, the author is calling God by both, the Lord God. And in the same way that we see this in the opening chapters of Genesis and the creation story, we get Elohim, right? God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then by the time we get to Genesis 4, we're introduced to the name of the Lord it's, it's there before, but we see the God of creation, Elohim, and the God of revelation to his people, Yahweh. And there's a shift here that I think Jonah is attempting, or the author of Jonah is attempting to get you to see. And that is that Jonah, despite his identity as a Hebrew, is now God is saying, I need, I need to deal with you not as a Hebrew because of your anger and your disdain towards your enemies. And so there's, there's this use of the name that transitions us for a bit. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and it came up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Stop. Anybody notice that? Jonah was glad for the first time in the book. Jonah was glad, not just glad, but exceedingly glad. Well, it's about time, Jonah. I haven't seen you crack a smile for the whole book. Thank you. A little selfish. That's all it took. A plant, a little shade. Thank you, God. Jonah's happy. But it's short-lived. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm, more of the sovereignty of God over his created order. He grows the plant. He appoints the worm. He appoints the fish. He tells the fish what to do. God appoints a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind that the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. I thought you were glad. Not anymore. He says, it's better for me to die than to live. So again, Jonah seeking after death. But God said to Jonah again with a little bit more poignancy, do you want to be angry for the plant? 
And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. But I'm suspecting that Jonah didn't say it that way. How many of us get called out on our anger and we want to defend our position? How many of us hate being, at, being told that you're, well, well, why are you angry? I'm not angry. There's a little bit of that going on right here. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Yes, I do, Jonah says. Even enough to die. You know, he's just angry. You were glad a minute ago, and there it went. You just, he's just angry, and he's holding on to it. We can get that, right? Now we get the Lord's name again. We're getting back. And the Lord said, now because we're, we're seeing the character of God in his covenantal nature coming back into play here. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. I don't know whether Jonah pitied the plant, but that's the, the example that God used. And he says this, should I not pity Nineveh? A great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. And that's how the book ends. God is acknowledging the whole of his created order in the city of Nineveh, even down to the cattle. You would have pity for the plant? Should I not pity these image bearers, all 120,000 of them, and even those other creatures that I made? Should there be no pity for them? And it's just left there. It's just left there for the reader to say, oh, aren't you going to have Jonah answer? No. You know why? Because it's not just for Jonah. It's for you and for me. Because you and I both struggle with self-elevation. And we're not so quick to pity others. So let's do a little application. Do you feel pity? I think sometimes in our culture, we use the word pity to think in terms of something that's not so good. It's not good to feel pity, and it's not good to be pitied. Even don't pity me. But in the right context, it's really an expression of compassion and mercy, and we're called to do it. And we should feel it for others, because God feels it, and he's calling Jonah to feel it, and calling him out when he doesn't feel it and calling you and I out when we don't feel it. Not if we don't feel it, but when we don't feel it. Do you feel pity? Do you feel pity for your enemies? It's easy to feel pity for people you love, who seem innocent to you, who don't seem to deserve what they get. But if your enemy's your enemy, they're your enemy because they, you don't like them. <laughs> And you're happy when things don't go their way. Sometimes you might mumble that under your breath. Well, I know I shouldn't feel this way, but it'd be great if, they, if this happened to them. Yeah, you've done that. Sure you have, because you're all looking down. I don't do that. Yes, you do. Yeah. It's just who we are. And God is calling us out through his word with this dangling question that is unanswered. Do you want God's mercy for them? 
And let me ask you this way, as much as you want for you. Because that's the second half of the question that's really challenging. Because all of us are very happy to receive God's mercy for us. We tell the story about God's mercy for us because we like to get mercy. Of course we do. But as I said before, Paul tells us that you and I too were once enemies of God and while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Do you want God's mercy for your enemies as much as you do for you? Of course the answer is no. And that's where we recognize the mercy that God gives is just that. It's mercy. It's unconditional. Because the first thing that we do is say, well, I don't want it for them because they don't deserve it. Because they did this to me. And you're better? Not before God. Not before God. You are an enemy. And God, by his grace and mercy, sovereignly sets you apart and applies the righteousness of Christ through his atoning death by his spirit so that you would be clothed in the righteousness of Christ belonging to him. And that is an act of mercy at the very heart of what it is to, to acknowledge the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all it is. We're going to come to the table. We're going to come to the table acknowledging that this table is an act of mercy from God that is by its very nature, part of the very definition of mercy, something that we don't deserve. As the ushers pass the elements out, I want to challenge you to just take a few minutes and consider that. What does it mean to receive the mercy of God undeserved? Because that's the very nature of it. Grace is something that's undeserved, unmerited. And the disaster that God relents from in Jonah he doesn't relent from at the cross. The perfect justice of God does not relent against the evil of the world. When it comes to the cross, Jesus absorbs the full wrath of God for our sins. That is mercy. pray together. Almighty God, you are merciful. And we are undeserving, which is why you need to, to be merciful. We need you to be merciful because we are undeserving. And you are God who is perfectly just when you choose to relent from disaster, you don't let anyone off the hook. Those people get moved under the category of your son who received the full wrath and penalty of sin 
cross. Your perfect justice played out, poured out fully on your son for us. That's what we say and what we just said. Good Friday, it's good for us because it was terrible for you in every way because the cost of sin is great because you are perfect in your holiness and justice but you are also perfect in your mercy and your compassion is poured out on those even though we sometimes don't think those are the right people to get it and there is no right people because everybody was an enemy of you and you set your people apart even before the foundations of the earth. Atoned for them through the shed blood of your son. Apply that by your spirit so that your church, your bride would be made spotless. Father, we thank you for this. May this resonate with us deeply as we come to your table, as we do, as you charge us to do, to remember you, to partake remembering you. We ask now, Lord, that you would take these elements, this cup and this bread, and you would set them apart for a holy purpose. They might become to our faith your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. We ask this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.